Hi everyone and welcome to the Panama podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. It's really great to be with you all and I'm really excited today to welcome a new guest and especially so as we're going to be covering two of my favourite subjects, uh, grief and superheroes. So um, welcome to the show, Dr. Jill Harrington. Thank you, James, for having me here today. Um, actually, two of my uh, subjects I'm pretty passionate about is uh, bereavement we're going to be talking specifically about. Grief is, grief is a reaction to loss, um, but bereavement is specific to the grief process we go through after somebody has died somebody significant in our lives. So um, I'm a big fan of superheroes too, and using them as a teaching medium um, to help the bereaved, a, a therapeutic medium, as well as using the, the power of visual arts to help educate grief counselors and grief therapists. Fantastic. So thanks for having me here today. Oh, it's, no, it's my honor. It's great to have you. Um, and Jill has written, has co-authored uh, or edited um, a book called Superhero Grief, the, the Transformative Power of Loss. And I've read, and it's a book full of essays about, um, about grief for bereavement and um, with case studies of different, loads of different superheroes from different universes. Um, and it's, uh, I've read some of them and they're fantastic. So we're gonna talk about a bit about that today. So um, what is it that brought you to kind of, exploring bereavement and grief in kind of the superhero realm through the lens of the superhero yeah so um i'll try to make a, a long story shorter but i have uh I, when i go to ireland my cousins don't let me kiss the blarney stone anymore because um i have too much of the gift of the gab so um i will try to to make this a amended version of a long story but um, back when I was a kid, I grew up in uh, Queens, New York. Um, well, actually, I was born in Queens, New York. Grew up on Long Island. My dad's from the Bronx. He actually went to the same school, DeWitt Clinton High School in the Bronx. That Stan Lee and Bill Finger and um, and Bob Kane went to. He didn't graduate with them. He was about you know two decades later, but uh, or a decade later. But you know, I grew up in like the '70s in New York, and it was like the mecca of um, comics and. And superheroes. We, growing up in the 70s, um, how it was on TV, um, ABC, NBC, and CBS, and we had PBS over here and the ubiquitous U channel, which you never really knew. That was like the emergency channel. You see them in some of the superhero movies. I think X Men has them. But, you know, I'd come home from school and um, right after school, as long as you did your homework and stuff, Wonder Woman would come on at four o'clock and Batman. And if you were really good, you got to watch Saturday morning cartoons, um, Justice League, Underdog. Um, you know, we didn't have TV 24-7 like the kids did today. But I grew up in the, the basically in New York where a lot of these superhero, um, the artists there um, were from. And so we were just immersed in it. And I grew up um, on a block with all boys. And a little being, being a little bit of a, a nerdy tomboy, um, uh, most superheroes weren't um, something that really girls were drawn to, but I was kind of nerdy and um, loved anything science fiction, loved Star Wars, loved that whole um, series, uh, space, you know, um, encounters of the third kind, like mm -hmm. tons of ET, all those tons of movies. But anyhow, um, again, so the combination of superhero and grief when I was 12 years old, my sister had a life-threatening illness and my mom worked um, in the medical realm in New York and she was put in the hospital and almost died. 
and I couldn't see her. It was really distressing. And a woman my mom worked with um, sort of came out of the shadows and said, hey, I told my brother what your kids were going through, your daughter who's died, like might potentially die, and her sibling who's really distressed by all this and can't visit her in the hospital. And he wants her to have, he's an artist and he wants them to have these two, these two drawings that he made. And lo and behold, her brother was Bob Kane, the artist behind Batman, the, the co-creator yeah. of Batman. Yeah, you can't see it behind me, but I have the cell that he created. Um, my sister lived, thankfully. Um, she has the cell of Catwoman that wishes her a speedy recovery. I have the one from Batman and Robin that wishes me best wishes. And so that's when to me, like the superpower of kindness, like these two folks kind of revealed their secret identity for no reason, just to help out two kids in like distressing circumstances. So when I was in a social work school, and once again, my master's in social work, I started in oncology and I saw a lot of the superhero archetype being used with the, the people with medical illness. Um, I had a, a client who was, a, sorry, a patient who was gonna have a bone marrow transplant. And I was a social worker, I was outpatient. Um, I was an outpatient social worker. And one day his company actually sent a, an actor or a person they got who does cosplay to the hospital dressed up in a Superman um, costume. And it was just amazing to see like the spirit that it just imbued to this, this young gentleman. Um, but he wound up actually dying from leukemia. And it was really beautiful how um, a lot of his family and friends used that, that Superman logo um, in their grief. Um, and kind of that, that logo became their logo of hope, but their logo of remembering um, this young gentleman and his struggle with leukemia. And so that's when the idea kind of started. I really didn't start really using it until after, um, you know, I had this idea in my head. And then um, in 2001, after uh, the unfortunate, horrible, horrific attacks in 9-11, um, I was working at uh, an agency in New York. I just, you know, was a young, newly graduated um, master's in social work. And I was working at a family agency in New York, working with a lot of underserved kids. And we were working um, after that on something called Project Liberty, which was providing education, grief and loss, and other types of trauma services to 9-11 survivors. And I had a, a very young kid, African-American kid from um, Queens, who had lost... Um, a father figure slash uncle, kind of like uh, Miles Morales does in um, in Spider Man into the into the multiverse, and um, he was really really shut down. And um, you know, we sat there in sessions. His his mother would bring him for sessions, and we just sit for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks through sessions. And you know, I'm used to this. I'm trained in it. You got to sit with silence with kids. Um, you got to let them trust you. Uh, you got to build rapport. But one day he, um, you know, like it's like his 12th or 15th session that he's in to see me. And one day he walked into my office and he was wearing a Batman t-shirt. And that was it. We didn't really have to talk about his loss, but we got to talk about Batman and we connected through Batman. And in that conversation, I was able to weave in with him that Batman too was a homicide survivor. And so that bridge, that created a rapport and a bridge and a connection that was a safe place for this kid to go to ex the externalization, that container of all that pain is in this character. And his be able to, ability to be able to really relate to that character opened up a therapeutic bridge. It helped build that rapport. And then the, really the idea for superhero grief to get the book going 
Um, I also have a son who is on the, has autism and um, we've had many losses uh, in his life. He lost his dad very suddenly at uh, six years old. And my, my parents, who he's very close to and his nanny at 25 to um, his babysitter who became like our, our family, um, part of our family died at 25 unexpectedly from a really horrible case of leukemia. And um, he had a lot of losses and a lot of pain. And if you are ever a parent of a special needs child, especially with autism, you try always to connect with kids, whether it's music or art or other things. And superheroes is his language. I mean, he picked it up for me um, and obviously took to the films and the comics and the movies. And this is how we talk about and process a lot of pain and grief is through these characters. It gives us the the aperture to kind of have the discussion points. We could talk about, you know, Black Panther and his ancestral connection to his father, how when he needs to invoke the spirit of his dad, he can go onto the ancestral plane and how he can have that continuing bond, just like Superman does um, when he wants to connect with Jor-El, he goes into the Fortress of Solitude yeah. and he takes off those sticks that are like memory sticks. And so a lot of this was just, I was processing it with my own son, using it through the years. And I was belonged to here in the United States, um, a trade association called uh, the Association for Death Education and Counseling. We're thanatologists, grief counselors, educators, um, uh, peer supporters, practitioners. Um, and I went around, it was in 2009 that I uh, had, was lucky to, as a doctoral student at the time, that I got to meet Dr. Kathy Shear about a potential project. And she's at the Center for Complicated Grief at Columbia University. She is a superhero in, um, in our realm um, and just an amazing, amazing grief and bereavement researcher. Um, mm -hmm. And also one of the founding persons, uh, founding um, professionals in complicated and prolonged grief disorder. And I got to sit with Kathy when I'm a measly doctoral student. She would never say that. She's totally super approachable. But I opened up my uh, my laptop and on my laptop was a picture of Batman. It was fan fiction, fiction art, uh, a picture of Batman holding roses. And he was in front of his parents' grave. It was in the snow. And she asked me, she's like, Jill, what is that? And so I had this like little devil on my shoulder that was like, do it, do it. Just tell her, just tell her. And then I had this little angel on my shoulder going, don't do that. You're going to completely ruin all your professional creds by going all superhero nerdy with the world's most, you know, well-respected bereavement researcher, one of the world's most respected bereavement researchers. But obviously I, I took a creatively bold leap of faith and I told her all about it. And I said, you know, if you Google, you know, Batman's a homicide survivor. His parents were killed right in front of him in AKA New York city, Gotham, um, you know, where you live and work. And, um, is a fictional character, but if you Google um, psychological conditions of Batman, one of the number one or number two comes up complicated grief. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that on a panel. And she's like, I'll consider it, Jill. That's really interesting. I was like, oh, awesome. But then um, we waited till about 2018. And um, I was really fortunate to enlist the help of my good friend and colleague, uh, Chris Hall at the Australian Center for Grief and Bereavement. He's the superhero nerdy fan like I am and saw within all these superhero genres. Um, and he loves um, also like, you know, let's look at Harry Potter. Harry Potter is a superhero um, in fantasy fiction and he follows the hero's journey. Um, but a lot of them are orphans. And uh, Chris does a fantastic job at looking at grief and loss through the lens of Harry Potter. But uh, we 
said, let's get together a panel and look at, you know, do a little psychodrama and um, look at grief and loss and bereavement issues through attachment informed grief therapy, uh, the parent as the surrogate caregiver, um, complicated grief, and as well as, um, as meaning making, um, and asked these four luminaries in the field to be part of this panel. And we dressed up and I dressed up as Catwoman, he dressed up as Alfred. And then we had the president of the association who was also had done some acting dress up as uh, Batman. And Bob Niemeyer, Robert, Robert Niemeyer, who's a luminary in our field, one of the best grief, another one, amazing grief researcher and therapist, um, put Batman in the chair. And it was such a moving experience. They looked at Batman through the lens of these Christopher Nolan films. And I guess the audience was so moved. And the book, the, book, uh, um, the publishing company, Routledge, was there. And Dr. Niemeyer happens to be the series editor. They approached me after, after and said, um, would you like to do a book on superheroes and grief or about grief and superheroes? I said, sure, I could, I could do something on Batman. They're like, no, the whole, all the universes. <laughs> so that is how the idea kind of came up. Um, and so they asked me to submit a proposal. I had to submit it in like two months. So I super hunkered down. Um, and just sat in front of my computer, but every single one of, um, I'm really fortunate to have a lot of great colleagues in the field, but what stands out at me when I watch these movies are all these concepts. And, um, for instance, like, you know, when Black Panther, uh, goes on to, when T'Challa goes to visit his father through the ancestral plane, that is something we call continuing bonds theory. Um, when you know Batman, who has issues with um, ruptured attachments or approach avoidance of people about attachments, that really speaks to the root of how, um, when people are grieving, how our, um, you know, Bowlby, who was a British psychiatrist, came up with the fact that we formulate relationships through attachment. He did a whole, a whole like wonderful series on loss and attachment, and that you know, the, the more attached we are to somebody or the perceived attachment and the closest of the attachment really is gonna affect the way we grieve because grief is, grief is a form of love. And so um, what it does is, you know, loss really galvanizes our attachment system. And when we separate from people who, through death, we go through, um, you know, basically separation anxiety, separation distress, and, um, you know, it could really, either kick into gear some really maladaptive attachments we had maybe formulated as a child and an adult, or it could cause, um, you know, attachment ruptures in our adulthood. So it was really um, an amazing experience to be asked to look at all these movies. These are all concepts. Each one of these chapters in this book, I sat down and came up with every single chapter in this book and I assigned homework assignments to all of my colleagues. Um, I thought of the people I knew um, who could do specific, they were basically subject matter experts. I wrote six of the chapters myself, um, but like, you know, I asked, uh, I asked uh, uh, Ken Doka and Terry Martin who really came up with grieving styles versus to, to really not genderize um, grief. Back in the, I think 2010 to 2011, they came up with a concept called grieving styles. And, um, you know, to say where people either grieve intuitively, instrumentally, most of us are blended grievers. Um, there are some people who are dissonant grievers. And I asked them to uh, approach them about looking at Batman through um, 
you know, a, a grieving style approach. And they did a really great case study on Batman, but they start off by saying that they were breaking one of their, their psychology rules, which was uh, never to really diagnose a fictional character. So they, they put that caveat in there. Most of the, most of my um, writers did, but I was really fortunate to reach out to over 50 different people, um, amazing, amazing grief educators and therapists. And, and um, also we have a section on, the book focuses on two concepts called transformative grief and post-traumatic growth. Um, post-traumatic growth is really a concept that um, has been around for a really long time. Viktor Frankl writes about it in his book, Man's Search for Meaning but it's finding meaning really in some of the most horrific struggles in life. And it was in um, 2006 that two researchers here in the United States, Sadeshi and Calhoun, really looked at this concept and um, especially uh, with all, across all different types of really horrific traumas and life experiences, but looking at it through the lens of grief and bereavement that um, it is not that um, it's the event itself, the death itself that changes us. It's that a prof it has to be really a profound, a profound death in our lives, something that is that shatters our world, that breaks us open, that there can actually be growth in the context of distress. Um, mm -hmm. It is that struggle to survive and finding, you know, that negative experiences don't always lend themselves to pathology. Um, we can have some negative consequences as well as growth together, this whole concept of the duality that pain and beauty can coexist and that, we can, that, that growth can happen in the context of stress and, dis and distress. And there's five factors that Tedeschi and Calhoun really examined um, that really came out through their research was that through profoundly horrific experiences, um, people can find growth through identifying, you know, once you've been broken down to your core and you have to rebuild, um, people could find that they, they are stronger than they think they are. They can tap into personal strength they never knew that they had. Um, they could find a new sense of spirituality. Um, through their, through their struggle, as well as um, closer connections to people. If you've ever had anybody die in your life, and especially if they've died suddenly, you really acutely become aware of your own mortality, as well as the mortality of others. And it can, it can make you really rewrite your address book, and sometimes in a good way. You can clear out all those toxic relationships and not sweat the small stuff, but also it it can, it can give you a sense of anxiety that you could be here today and gone tomorrow, but it could also be used for good use that it can also help you to realize the fragility of life and really carpe diem, like seize the day. Um, so another factor is um, hope. We can find hope if we make it through some of our, I mean, I think Holocaust survivors, um, a lot of them who've gone on to write books and to do podcasts and to work with those who've been through those horrific traumas provide a ton of hope to people about surviving the most horrible, horrific of all humanity's, um, you know, evilness. And so, um, you know, we could find hope through, you know, maybe it is a bereaved parent who reaches out to a newly bereaved parent someone who lost their child 10 years ago to suicide 
or drug overdose and reaches out to that newly bereaved parent who's experiencing that same kind of loss and touches them in a way that's saying, hey, if you could be there 10 years later, you're somehow finding a way, maybe I can too. And so we have five chapters written on um, each of these factors of post-traumatic growth paired with a, um, paired with a, uh, a superhero and those who are bereaved who've been through each of these journeys. So um, it's really like a beautiful section of the book. And um, you know, we can also have a deeper appreciation of life through our losses. So that's a little bit about how superhero grief came about. Um, I was really fortunate to have all these fantastic people willing to write for the book and take a creative leap. And these were folks who, I made the assignment easy for them because some of them had zero superhero knowledge. And um, this is, you know, my language. This is what I do. This is I, I speak that in Gojira, Godzilla, love Godzilla. Um, but I was fortunate enough that all these concepts kind of jump out at me, like uh, Tony Stark when Friday talks to him when he's wearing his helmet, um, Iron Man. You know, all these things kind of jump out at him. He sees them like vision, and um, these concepts jumped out. And I wrote them all down and found the people to match the concept and gave them homework assignments. So some of them didn't really have to know the characters. It's really using the character, not to analyze the character. It's using the character to teach or to, or to teach or provide mm -hmm. support. Yeah. And, the, and that, that's certainly been my experience. I've learned a lot of a lot through these characters. Um, and, you know, having been through grief and doing a lot of grief advocacy and I, I always notice these patterns and I notice these experiences and I notice yeah, all of this um, in, especially in superheroes that I that I love, but um, in many many stories um, and movies. Um, so let's do, I just let's just focus on one because you you wrote a chapter on Superman, and uh, Superman's my favorite comic book hero. <laughs> he was my <laughs> childhood hero, um, and obviously he he he. He loses an earthly parent, uh, um, his adoptive father. Um, he also loses, he's also obviously orphaned because his parents send him away from his home planet and they, they, are, they are killed. Um, um, and so what was it you, what was it you um, reflected on as regards to his experiences of grief and type of grief or what is it that you shared that you learned about, about Superman and his experiences of grief? The chapter really focuses on the creators of Superman. Um, so Man of Steel um, and uh, the things he shares, the losses that potentially the, the creators of Superman who were Siegel and Schuster, two young boys yeah. from um, Ohio and Cleveland, Ohio. And um, Siegel lost his father um, they still don't know to this day, the father was a shop owner in Cleveland and his father died during a robbery. Now they don't know if the father, it says still think that the father died of basically, and that could happen like a heart attack, a massive heart attack as someone pulled a gun on him and tried to rob the store. And wow. the concept of Superman actually Siegel and Schuster came up with this concept like a week after his father died. So you see, um, these parallels between the man of steel and his creators. So this whole 
notion of losing a father at a young age and feeling kind of like an alien in another realm. Um, Siegel and Schuster were also first generation sons of Jewish immigrants who were fleeing the Holocaust. Um, and so his parent, their parents were that first generation that came to uh, on the shores of a lot of other countries trying to find safe refuge from Holocaust and the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, um, it's sad for me to say that they, they did find a lot of that here um, and in other places around the world, the pervasive anti-Semitism. And, um, you know, you see this sort of in the character of Superman as well, too. Um, there are so many parallels uh, with the story of Moses. That's um, mm. hard not to yeah. really see this. Um, you know, he was, Superman was created after Siegel's father's death and after um, their Seder dinner, which as you know, the Seder dinner is the high holy dinner of, um, of Passover, which recants um, part of the Seder dinner, recants the story of Moses's exodus um, out of uh, Egypt into, uh, into Israel. And so, you know, Moses was a baby that was cast, you know, um, like Superman because uh, the parents were afraid the Pharaoh was gonna go around and killing all, all the sons of, um, of the Jews. And he was afraid that, uh, the mother was afraid he was gonna get killed and he was adopted. He was a, you know, a foundling that was adopted by uh, the Pharaoh's daughter. And so here you have Superman who's basically he's facing the genocide of his people. And that's essentially what was happening back in the day of Moses and during the Holocaust. And um, he, uh, he was sent off to another planet and um, was adopted. And so a lot of the Jewish creators at that time, there's lots of parallels too, in terms of like, um, you know, not only individual losses of Siegel and Schuster, but a collective loss of the Jewish people um, that are really poured into these characters. And we have to realize that um, most of the superhero creators um, were young, young or, or not all young, but younger or middle age, um, first generation or, or from Jewish heritage. Um, they, most of their names, like Stan Lee is not Stan Lee. Stan Lee is Stan Lee Leibowitz. Bob Kane, who was the co-creator of Batman, was Robert Kahn. During the day when these superheroes were created, the mainstream media and Hollywood didn't think people would patronize the Jewish arts. So these creators actually adopted secret identities themselves mm -hmm. um, to survive and to thrive. And so there's a lot, I think, of the, the rich cultural heritage that the losses, not just the death losses, but the non-death losses that the, these creators experience either individually themselves or generationally that got poured into these characters. That's incredible, that really is. And when you think Superman was probably the first superhero, he was kind of, that, hearing all of that and Superman's origins, and him being the first superhero is almost a very symbolic in some ways, uh, even more so than, than I'd realized actually. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting. They made a bulletproof, you know, Superman's bulletproof, right? Yeah. And 
Siegel's father got held up at a store. And this was also the time here in America where there was the mob, there was murder, there was mayhem, there was the Great Depression, and there was violence all around. And so the world kind of, you know, and, and World War II and the Holocaust was going on. So, you know, Hitler had an idea of an Ubermensch and Siegel and Schuster actually, once this concept um, became accepted and, you know, they, they made several tries at a Superman character. The first character I think actually was a little bit evil, um, but they came back and they reworked it. He was supposed to action comics. Number one was supposed to be published in 1939, but then it got uh, in 1940, but it got sped up because it became so popular and we're in the middle of a war and war propaganda that the United States actually wanted to get out their version of Superman prior to the Nazis uh, to kind of counter the propaganda about what the Nazi concept of the Ubermensch was. And so the world created, you know, Siegel and Schuster um, created the Superman, not for that reason, but he became the symbol of hope to the oppressed. He became the symbol of hope to, for, for justice, um, for a humane uh, way of life, um, for anti-genocide. Um, so it's interesting, the most superheroes, if you look at the storylines, almost every storyline in every single superhero story is about oppression and annihilation, which these characters fight against. They fight against oppression and annihilation. And so, you know, that's what was happening in the day here in the world during World War II. Um, and so these superheroes really came out of the, the collective trauma of World War II, as well as, um, you know, because the whole world was fighting against the, let's face it, the uh, oppression and annihilation of, um, of the, 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 um, the Axis powers. So um, um, it's interesting that these superheroes, it's, it's the, the mythology was created. You see sort of art in the context of profound pain um, to help try to understand. Uh, superheroes are our modern day mythology. And, you know, we've been, mythology has been around to help humans tell stories to try to understand some of the, the, you know, things in the world that seem un not understandable to us, like storms and natural disasters. And we've been trying to make sense of this existential journey, um, you know, through oral stories and through written stories for centuries. And mythology is there to kind of explain away sometimes or help us process or try to understand some of the deepest of human struggles. And um, this, I guess, was created out of, uh, during the times, um, you know, these superheroes were created out of one of the most horrific experiences that we've experienced in our, in our modern age. Mm. Yeah, that's incredible, it really is. And it was because of this, uh, what this, with Superman, oh, Superman was actually banned. The super, any comics, and superhero comics, American superhero comics, or any of them that were affiliated were banned throughout all of Nazi Germany and the territories because of what they symbolized. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, yeah. Well, I know we're low on time, but um, I, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing 
all of this. It's really, um, it's been useful for me, and I think it'll be useful for others to understand how these stories can and these characters can um, connect with us, how they can be solidarity for us, how they can be examples to us, um, and what their purpose was in, in the beginning, where they came from, um, can help us deal with big challenges of life and deal with trauma and can deal with loss and bereavement and grief um, and um, can be uh, almost examples to us, even friends in a sense, um, and symbols to to give us hope. Um, and yeah, I really appreciate you, uh, you sharing all of this. Yeah. You know, it's not that the, the superhero is impervious to loss. You know, some people will say there's you know a lot of pressure to you know with these characters it, it would symbolize like I, I need to experience death and just be a superhero you know like I'm supposed to have but it's not true like you actually see now they've gotten better it used to be that death kind of had no consequences but most of these stories um the the origin story of death is now becoming part of the story like we saw in WandaVision they really did a deep dive on yeah, um, right yeah and I I loved I didn't love it but it just hold held true the amount of pop psychologists getting on really diagnosing her kind of turned my stomach a bit so I had to you know go on my own grief and bereavement advocacy rant um about really this is it just mirrors the judgment that um especially widowed persons get in society, you know, uh, vision was killed and, you know, she creates this hex and in, in nine days and gosh, you know, it, it's, it's a several lifetimes she's creating within the context of that hex. Um, but she's acutely violently bereaved. She's lost everybody in her family. She witnesses, not only witnesses, but she can't save. she's got survivor's guilt. She can't save her, her, her husband. Um, and here she is with all these magical powers and she's trying really hard, um, but she goes to basically, um, and I've worked with a lot of families here who have lost, uh, lost uh, service members in combat death because essentially Vision was killed in combat death. Um, you know, that trip to the morgue where she's got to identify him and sees him in parts and, you know, they're manipulating her, which is another theme in, this, in the film. Um, yeah about how vulnerable, the, especially the newly bereaved really are and how taken advantage they are of. And she goes back to the home that they were gonna create um, and just is broken open. And I don't know anyone on the face of this earth that's loved, has had a beloved spouse or fiance or partner in which they have a good relationship, a beloved one. I'm caveating that because it's people that they really love um, sometimes marriages and partnerships aren't like that, um, that if they had magical powers, would not <laughs> return their person back to life in some kind of form. Um, but she creates this protective bubble mm -hmm. to really try to negotiate what the researchers Strobra and Schutt look at because we don't subscribe to the five stages of grief anymore. That is not postmodern theory. That was a theory that Kubler-Ross came up with um, while she was actually studying the dying, not the bereaved. And 
it was broadly applied to the bereaved because it was really looking at anticipatory grief as people were dying. But, you know, she started the dialogue and she started compassionate care and hospice. And even before she died, she said, you know, I think my stages of grief are not really applicable anymore. And they don't take like a unique, we are all as unique as our fingerprints or a snowflake and grief, our grief process and how we go through loss is very unique to us. I mean, there's commonalities with people. There is, there is some kind of commonalities, but how everybody grieves is if someone says they're a grief expert, please run in the other direction because you're your own expert in how you grieve. So, um, yes, you know, absolutely, you're your own superhero. You're your own hero. You're on your own hero's journey. And, um, you know, as she's kind of negotiating between what Strober and Schutt talk about in the dual process model that, you know, especially when we're acutely bereaved, we are just preoccupied with loss. We are, it is central. It's like, if you've ever had a headache, like a migraine headache, can you think of anything else? Loss deprives us. If, if you were sitting in a room or on an airplane and the oxygen got sucked out of the room, that loss of oxygen would only make you think about the oxygen you have, but we take it for granted. And when somebody dies, the oxygen and the life is kind of sucked out of us. And that's all we could think about. And we're supposed to, because, you know, we attach to people to survive for emotional survival, for physical survival. Um, It is in our DNA. It is a survival mechanism that Volby researched a long time ago. Babies can't live unless they learn how to attach to a caregiver. They have to be taken care of. Mm. Um, And we form these bonds. And so when that bond is broken by the ultimate of all bonds, which is death, we protest against it. We don't want it. And so Wanda's really protesting. She's doing everything. Now, granted, she did take advantage. She did take a whole town hostage. Um, she wasn't doing anything really bad, like killing people in the town. She did take the whole town hostage. She kind of took them on her journey with her. But sometimes we do that when we're in an immense amount of pain. Um, um, not excusing it, but um, she wasn't doing horrifically wicked things to people in town. She just was kind of like taking away their memory and depriving them of their life because she was being felt like she was being deprived of hers. And, um, you know, had a lot of compassion for what she went through in terms of losing her whole family violently. Here she is, like has nobody. So, you know, when she fell in love with vision, she had already lost her brother and her parents violently in war. And, um, why should she even, she had a lot of courage just to open herself up to loving somebody again, because that's another thing. Once you've had profound loss in your life, it can really set you on a journey to push people away because you don't want to be close. You don't want to suffer that loss again. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, we see this kind of beautifully in the end where she has to come to some kind of, I don't want to use the word acceptance. She's learning in the end of, of that TV series, she's negotiating, um, you know, even though we are, we are in our loss, we can't stay in it. This is what the, the dual process talks about that. Yes, we are in two different states, one of loss orientation and trying to negotiate all these difficult feelings and the deprivation of loss and everything else. But there's also restoration. We also live in the world that comes knocking at your door and says, hey, you know, I'm a a newly bereaved widow, two young children, and I got to get up and feed my kids. I've got to get up and um, pay the bills. Um, 
the days go by. It's like, what am I going to do now? Like I have to go out and mow the lawn or I have to connect with people on some level. If I'm going to survive this world, I got to come out of my bubble. And so slowly we see her um, really negotiating and weaving in this um, beauty and that beauty and pain can coexist. And that, you know, what is grief, but if not love persevering, yeah. and I think it's a beautiful, they did a really deep dive um, beautifully in WandaVision. I'd love to um, talk about it more with you, but I can go on all day about it. But, you know, these characters are um, amazing examples of things we teach in grief and bereavement, as well as things I use therapeutically um, in helping to support the bereaved. And uh, I just think that, um, you know, it makes something that's really, really profoundly difficult for people to talk about um, approachable. And so that was really the, the concept of the book that if, you know, you can externalize, you know, art is a container for a lot of things. And this is a superheroes are visual arts and they're beautiful visual arts. Um, you know, they weren't really considered art. They were considered um, sort of like uh, um, graffiti in a way in back in the day, but they're, and even now there are a lot of um, movie directors and stuff who poo poo the superhero films, but that there's a lot of beautiful artistry in these movies. And if we can use art as a medium to help support and teach, especially people in a lot of pain, um, I think let's go for it. Absolutely agree. I absolutely agree with that. Um, yeah, I've learned so much about processing grief in healthy and unhealthy ways um, from- Absolutely. And superhero stories. And, you know, that, yeah, that we connect with them because there's, some of their story is our story and we find we find ourselves in their stories and you know i have found solidarity and i've also found examples of what not to do as well in those stories so yeah i absolutely agree with you um yeah. I, I know we could probably talk for hours about this and there's so many <laughs> characters well, like we didn't even get on to batman you know and um you know, Batman did a whole. That's a whole. We could do a whole podcast on Batman. Because there's also uh, a lot of misconceptions about that and how Batman is portrayed. And but you know, we talk about healthy or unhealthy. I, you know, I often don't use those words with people because there's adaptive and then there's sort of maladaptive. Because whose definition is like healthy, you know, and whose definition is yeah, unhealthy? Yeah, yeah, I don't. That's mean, kind of a buzzword we use. Um, but you know what might be healthy to me might not be healthy. But we look at things more like is that adaptive to a person or is that kind of maladaptive? There's um, you know, there's one, there's a couple of my students. One of their favorite, favorite, favorite um, modules in my Intro to Grief counseling class is um, looking at the influence of culture, religion, ethnicity, spirituality, and grief. And um, one of my students did an entire PowerPoint, a research presentation on a tribe in Africa, because Africa is a content, continent, not a country, um, a tribe in a country in Africa, that it's part of their culture because funerals are actually the biggest event, not a birth, not a marriage, mm -hmm. nothing else. Funerals are actually the biggest event in their culture. And the families have to save money sometimes for years and years and years and years before they can bury their deceased. And it's a big deal um, that they lived with the, they live with the person's corpse and take care of the corpse in their homes for four to five to seven years. 
at a time, sometimes even 10. And so for me, coming from my sort of white Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, American, Westernized background, if I looked at that, I'd be like, gosh, that's like weekend at Bernie's. That's so unhealthy. But it's not. It's actually something that's extraordinarily adaptive and oh, yeah, absolutely. in that yeah. culture. I think when I read, I said unhealthy, I mean, I mean things that cause harm to other people. Um, right, um, right. So, you know, as, as long as things well, don't, yeah. yeah. We, there's a saying we used to have, as long as it doesn't bring you to high places, knives, guns, pills, um, lots of alcohol, um, you're not hurting yourself or other people. Um, there's a broad category about, you know, what's adaptive for people. So um, yeah, people can, do, people can do very self-destructive things when they're in pain. Um, they're trying to find respite from their pain often, um, or they're, you know, um, there's a lot of anger with loss. Um, we, again, we protest um, when people die. We, we don't really walk into it lightly. We don't want people to go that we love, that we're really connected to. Um, and the superhero's journey oftentimes starts with, as Deadpool 2 would say, um, this is a family film and it starts off with a vicious murder. Um, somebody asked me why they thought most of these origin stories had to do with a murder or or homicide or a violent dying. And I said, well, because in storytelling, what is not the best catalyst for somebody to walk a really, it's the path that they take and they become imbued with these superpowers or they, as they're trying to create an identity after loss, possibly imbued with new superpowers like Peter Parker in Spider-Man, you know, Uncle Ben says, you know, with great responsibility, with great power comes great responsibility they could use in their grief, they could use all these powers to be really destructive. And so, and we see that, we see that they can, but ultimately they use their pain transformatively to, for the, for the greater good and for hopefully, you know, to help save their worlds from oppression and annihilation. And that could be your own world to not be oppressed and annihilated in your loss. Yeah. Well, wow. that's that's powerful. Yeah. That's really profound. Really profound. This has been a really great conversation and I you know, I know there's a lot of people who have experienced grief that I know will will really benefited from it and I have too. Um, and yeah, we'll definitely have to have more conversations about um, Absolutely, I'd love, I'd love to return, James. Thank you so much for having me today. No, it's, it's been great to have you. So thanks for coming on. And thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>